0: Hey, everyone. This is Taylor Halverson from Book of Mormon Central. We've had a lot of requests to add our weekly Come Follow Me videos with myself and Tyler Griffin to our podcast. We are very excited to do this. However, just know that we use a lot of visuals in our videos. So, if you ever want to see the visuals, check out Book of Mormon Central on YouTube. We hope you enjoy.
1: This video is the second episode in a two-part series for this week's Come Follow Me material. If you haven't seen part one, we recommend that you watch it so that you have context for this episode. The link will be included in the description. If you've already seen the first episode, enjoy. Look at look at the last line of verse 12 as he as he f- is finalizing this concept of, of the ultimate gathering. And they shall not sorrow anymore at all. It, it hearkens to... to the idea of of God wiping away all tears from their eyes. Sorrow will be done away. Those those, uh, tests of mortality will have filled their purpose and no more need for sorrow. It's a beautiful promise for the gathering.
0: And it's interesting because there's a lot of cause for sorrow. So in verse 15, thus saith the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children because they were not. And so, there's this cause because they're going into judgment. This very verse, it talks about, in Jeremiah's context, Rachel weeping for her children. The children of Rachel were Joseph and Benjamin. And so Jeremiah is talking about the house of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh, and the tribe of Benjamin going into exile, and how Rachel figuratively is weeping for her children. Now interestingly, this gets picked up in Matthew Matthew. chapter 2.
1: Matthew loves this verse.
0: So he he's going to cause and, and talk about how in his context, he's going to apply that to that incidence in Matthew chapter 2, where King Herod um, has that um, sort of action against the, all the young ones in Bethlehem. And he's going to bring that in and, and pull it in as another sort of instance of this. But every time we see that there is this um, sense of Judgment, the sense of destruction, the sense of exile, whether it's here in Jeremiah or in Isaiah or in any of the other prophets, it's always then balanced out with hope. The hope that Israel will be gathered back together, the hope that there is consolation, the hope that there is redemption. And as it says in verse 17, and there is hope in thine end, saith the Lord, that thy children shall come again to their own border. It may not be you, but your children then, be able to be drawn back and in this situation, says the Lord through the prophet Jeremiah here.
1: Absolutely. And in verse 27 he gives them this promise that he is going to watch over their seed, the seed of these two families. Uh, Look at the bottom part of verse 28, so will I watch over them to build and to plant, saith the Lord. Then he says something fascinating that ties into what Taylor has been talking about here. In those days they shall say no more, the fathers have eaten a sour grape, and the children's teeth are set on edge. So there will be a day when the rising generation won't be able to say, well, we're struggling because of the generations before, it's their fault. He's saying, nope, that's going to be done away. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Every man that eateth the sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge you you will no longer be able to to have this effect in a negative way future generations, as it has in previous parts of this, this Old Testament narrative coming up to this point.
0: So you have this, this call for individual responsibility and individual agency, that you can't just rely on somebody else, or because somebody else did something, you're suffering for it. Everybody's going to be responsible. But the beauty of this comes, in, in starting in verse 31, in which the Lord says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was an husband to them, saith the Lord. So, this covenant.
1: It's not going to be like this covenant.
0: But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts, And write it in their hearts, and will be their God, and they shall be my people." So, another use of that phrase. "...And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more."
1: I don't know of very many scriptures that are more comforting, more hope-filled than verse 33 and 34.
0: Absolutely. Talking about the law being written and the covenant, it's not an external thing. It's not written on a stone or written in a book or anything else like that. It's written in their inward parts, in their heart. Right? So it's a, it's an interesting thing. Now, we can take this a few ways, right? So it's meant for us to internalize, right? We can think about this and we're living it and it's there. Jeremiah's context, it, it's also can be interpreted another way. It's kind of interesting. So he talks about writing on, on their in, inward parts and writing it on their heart. I think one of the ways we can interpret this is that Jeremiah is referring to a process, or um, a practice called—here's a fancy word for us today—extispicy. Right? Extispicy kind of looks like extra spicy, but extispicy. <laughs> and extispicy is the process, or the 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 sort of procedure, of trying to look at an animal's inward parts once it's been slaughtered, and to divine the future, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And so there's a ton of Mesopotamian texts that deal with, with this and looking at specifically the the inward parts, so the heart, the liver, sometimes um, the gallbladder, and they can sort of look in at the veins that are in the liver or if it runs a certain way or that, that common bile duct is connected in a way, and they'll go, oh, maybe this is going to happen in your future. Now, we think of it as sort of like magical, mythical, kind of like mumbo-jumbo. This was science to them because they had data that said— well, the sheep liver looked like this, and then this happened to this guy, so correlation then equals causation in this sense. Um, and then specifically looking at the liver is a process known as heptascopy. When Jeremiah talks about the Lord writing the covenant on our inward parts, I think one of the things that he's referring to is not only us internalizing the law, and internalizing this new covenant. But it's kind of referring to this, because as we look at this, exstasis and specifically heptascopy, that isn't for the sheep itself. The sheep or the animal doesn't benefit from having the vein running a certain way or whatever, right, it's not for them. This is for other people. So, whereas we can take the covenant and internalize it, so it's not going to be like the Sinai covenant, and it's going to be this new covenant, it's internalized for us, and it's a good thing, that covenant is actually meant for other people to see. So we don't have to teach them, know the Lord, we're going to show them who the Lord is, right? We're going to be that example of, of all the things that the Lord says here. Because we've been forgiven, our sin is no more, we're going to be that true example that people then can look at our livers or hearts in an odd way, um, but see the Lord reflected through us in an external way, so it's not just an internal, we're also showing that to others.
1: I love this concept, George, because what it does is it's it's taking us beyond what we do and say, and it's getting us down to that core level of who we are and who we're striving to become. It's it's something so much deeper than just what people can observe on the outward side. It's – God has given us a new heart. He's, he's removed from our he, – he's rooted out of our breasts that wicked spirit, as we read in uh, Nephi's psalm. He's changed us from within. Wasn't it President Benson who who had that great concept of the world tries to change us from the outside in, but the Lord changes us from the inside out, and then we go and change the world? Beautiful concepts tied in here.
0: And if we were to – if we were to summarize the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7, or the Sermon at the Temple in, Bound- in 3rd Nephi 12 through 14, it would be these two verses – because it's changing not only our action, it's changing who we are, right? It's not just acting a certain way like God, it's being and becoming more like him, and that is going to then show out to everyone else, there's going to be this external to it as well.
1: I love that. And then to to make his point really clear, he uses a a bit of kind of uh, tongue-in-cheek irony or or hyperbole to say, look, if – if you can get the sun and the moon and the stars to stop doing what they normally do, then I'll I'll stop holding out for this covenant. You'll no longer have any, any guarantees of this covenant. Obviously no person has any capacity to stop the earth in its orbit to prevent the sun and the moon and the stars from doing what they're doing. He's going to repeat that again over in chapter 33 verse 19 through 21, that same concept. He's using these really extreme examples to say it's impossible, it's immutable, it's unconditional, I'm going to do this, I'm going to create this new covenant in you, and you will be my people by your own choice. That's the cool thing, is he's still respecting the agency, which now brings us to chapter 32 where uh, things are going to get a little more difficult. For Jeremiah, because he's thrown in prison by Zedekiah.
0: He is. Now, again, we're kind of like hop through different uh, different historical contexts here. But in chapter 32, um, the word of the Lord comes to, to, to Jeremiah and it says, In the tenth year of Zedekiah the king. So if Zedekiah starts reigning 597. We're looking at now 587, so about the year before Jerusalem is destroyed. And so. Um, they're in a tough spot. Verse two, for then the king of Babylon's armies besieged Jerusalem and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the prison, which was in the king of Judah's house. And the reason he was imprisoned there is because Jeremiah's prophesying, verse three, thus saith the Lord, behold, I will give the city into the hand of the king of Babylon and he shall take it. And Zedekiah is not going to escape and he's going to lead Zedekiah to Babylon and, and, and all the rest of these things. And so, Jeremiah is once again prophesying against Jerusalem and against Judah and against the king, and Zedekiah takes offense to this and imprisons um, Jeremiah. And the Babylonians come, so 587, they're going to have an 18-month siege of Jerusalem. 18-month siege of Jerusalem, and so things are looking kind of dire. I think you don't need to be a prophetic voice to look and say, well, this isn't going to be good. But yet they're still – you can see they're still clinging on to this Zion theology that the Lord's going to save them, and Jeremiah says that's just not going to be the case, and so Jeremiah's sitting in prison.
1: Which is so interesting because here he's in prison with Babylon sieging the city. Nothing's getting in, nothing's getting out. They're, they're in trouble, and then you get this funny story of Hanamiel, who happens to be a cousin to Jeremiah, coming and saying, hey, buy my fields, it's in Anathoth, but by my fields, at this particular time, Jeremiah, in prison.
0: <laughs> so it's, it's, it's a great thing. It says in verse 8, So Hanamiel, my uncle's son, so his cousin, came to me in the court of the prison, according to the word of the Lord, and said unto me by my field, I pray thee, that is in Anathoth, which is in the country of Benjamin, for the right of inheritance is thine, and the redemption is thine, buy it for thyself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. The w- word of the Lord had come to Jeremiah saying, you're going to need to buy your cousin's field, and sure enough, his cousin shows up and says, can you buy this? And Jeremiah says, okay, I know this is the word of the Lord. It's an interesting thing because, uh, interestingly enough, um, Anathoth is not that far from Jerusalem. In fact, from Mount Scopus, just across from Jerusalem, you can see Anathoth, so it isn't that far away. But the principle here of of Jeremiah redeeming it, right, and the right of redemption is line. so it goes back to that concept that we see in the book of Ruth of being the kinsman redeemer, the one who's going to buy back or purchase or redeem somebody and help them out, The cousin's like, well, I went through the genealogy, it's your right, right? So you need to, It's if you want to buy it, it's yours. You get the right of first refusal here. Even though you're in prison, right? (laughs) Even though you're in prison, right? It's yours. But Jeremiah is going to act then as this redeemer. And we see this again, the sign act, this object lesson of Jeremiah acting in a very Christ-like way to redeem this piece of property. Even though they're in the middle of a siege, even though he's in prison, even though the exile of Judah and Jerusalem have been prophesied, He's going to buy a piece of ground.
1: <laughs> and in the process of buying this piece of ground, we get the, this fascinating little uh, story of how they would do it. You're going to take two documents, and you, this, this contract is going to be um, an exact copy over here, you're going to have two of them, one of them, it says very clearly, is going to be out in the open, and the other is going to be sealed in, a, in an earthen vessel. Um, you're going to take the open one for this contract, and it's, it's available for everybody to see, and the sealed one in this earthen vessel, it's as if it's placed in the ground. It's sealed up. It's hidden away. Um, a couple of episodes ago when we had uh, Sean Hopkins joining us, he, he pointed out this beautiful application, a likening of this particular object lesson to how you could see the Bible being left out in the open, this contract, the covenantal contract of redemption. We're redeeming something that is is uh, under siege and we're showing you, hey, there's hope for this The Bible is that first message that is out in the open, and then you get the Book of Mormon that is sealed up and that is going to speak low, out of the dust, with a familiar spirit, using Isaiah 27, this idea of it coming forth not in competition with the open document. The Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, the Pearl of Great Price, they've never Intended to be an enemy to or a competition in competition with the Bible. It's the same contract to show that the Lord God of Israel has all of these promised blessings that are available to us if we will choose to enter into that covenant with him. And so, this open document that gets circulated above ground might get tampered with a little bit, might get changed completely in other places might get things added to and taken away from, but what an amazing thing to have a second copy of the contract that later on can be brought out of the ground, unsealed, so that you can verify and validate in a compare and contrast, not in a competition. I, I just love that, that object lesson that comes out of this seemingly insignificant detail given to us in, in Jeremiah chapter 32 here.
0: So, if you've ever wondered why the details are in there, there are lessons to be learned. It's, it's, that's the great thing. Once it's completed, very interestingly, there's a couple of things we, we want to point out here. Um, starting in in verse um, 16, once the purchase is done, Jeremiah then has his prayer to the Lord, but he says in, in verse 17, Ah, Lord God, behold, thou hast made the heaven and the earth by thy great power and stretched out arm, and there is nothing too hard for thee— Thou show us loving kindness unto thousands and recompenses the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children after them. The great, the mighty God, the Lord of hosts is his name. Great in counsel, mighty in work. And then he continues on praying about all the things that the Lord has done and that what the Lord has promised to do um, later on about how the Babylonians are coming and they're going to take the city. And it ends in verse 25, Thou hast said unto me, O Lord God, buy thee the field for, the, for money and take witnesses for the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans." So, even in the face of the Babylonians besieging Jerusalem, the Lord says, go ahead and buy this land because there's going to be a time when you're going to come back. That's the promise here. That loving kindness, that Hesed extends to thousands, millions, billions, everyone. That loving kindness is going to bring them back. So, Jeremiah or his family or some other kinsman redeemer, because he's not married, is going to be able to redeem that property and keep it within the family. But he makes that statement, and it's an interesting statement In verse 17, there's nothing too hard for thee. The response from the Lord that comes, starting in verse 26, is then came the word of the Lord unto Jeremiah saying, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? If there's any question in Jeremiah's mind of, I'm buying this land, how are we going to pull this thing off, right? How am I going to redeem it? How's the Lord going to bring us back? The Lord echoes back to him this question of a statement that he makes earlier, but he says, is there anything too hard for me? Now think about this because in your Old Testament scripture study, think about the times and even in the New Testament, the, things of, the times that the Lord has said this. Here's one instance. One of the main instances of talking about covenants goes back to Genesis chapter 18 verse 14. Just to catch us up on the story, you may recall Abraham is in, the, in his tent. He has these three visitors so Sarah starts to, to make food, Abraham is entertaining them, hospitality as he should, main visitor asks where Sarah, and Abraham says in the tent, and then he makes a prophetic statement that about this time next year Sarah's going to bear a child. Now Abraham and Sarah have been promised a child for a long time, Abraham's 99, Sarah's 90, beyond childbearing years in, in our consideration, and of course Sarah does the natural thing and that's she laughs inside of herself. She doesn't even do it out loud, it's, it's internally I mean, laughing, but there's no way it's going to happen. And the messenger says in Genesis eighteen, verse fourteen. The Lord said unto Abraham, verse thirteen, wherefore did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I have a surety bear a child which am old? Is there anything too hard for the Lord? The Lord tells Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter thirty two, verse twenty seven Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? We fast forward to Luke chapter 1, the angel Gabriel shows up to Mary and says that she is going to bear the Messiah. And she says, how's this going to happen? Because I'm not even married. And he makes a statement, right? Nothing is too hard, nothing is impossible for the Lord. The lesson that I take away from this, as I look at this, and I have my own problems, and I have, we all do, have our own situations, and we think, oh, this is, this is a, an immense right, situation I'm in, or or here's something I'm not sure how this is going to work out, and I'm not even sure if the Lord can help with with anything like this. I always think to myself, if he can have Jeremiah buy a piece of property that Jeremiah will never use, but yet will remain in the family because he's going to bring them back out of captivity. If he can cause a 90-year-old woman to be able to have a child, if he can cause a woman who's never been married and had any sort of intimate relations to be able to have the Messiah, If he can organize creation, then my problems are not too hard for him. There's nothing too hard for the Lord. And he reiterates this to Jeremiah, the fact that there's nothing too hard. He's going to be able to bring them back regardless of what's going to happen in the Babylonian captivity. And all the things they're going through in this siege and and how desperate the times are. He will still honor his covenant because of that loving kindness that he has. And it's not too hard for him.
1: I love that. <clears throat> and then to finish that chapter, you'll notice from thirty eight through forty four if if you need a a pick me up, another another section to remind you of how good God is and how powerful He is, starting verse thirty eight they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Wait We've heard that, that phrase before, before mm-hmm. many times. And I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever for the good of them and of their children after them." Of course, using the word fear, not in the afraid, shaking our knees together kind of context, but in this covenantal um, respect and loyalty to God context. Verse 40, I will make an everlasting covenant with them, and I will not turn away from them to do them good. I will put my fear in their hearts, and they shall not depart from me." Brothers and sisters, this is not something we have to wait for. We don't need to wait to be objects to be acted upon. We can make the choice today, right now, to more fully trust him. As George just got through talking through this whole sequence, is there anything too hard for me? We can trust him. That's that's what faith is, is to believe that God will do all of these good things for us if we just put our, our trust and our loyalty in his hands and move forward.
0: And one of the things he asks us to do, interestingly, if we carry this into to chapter 33, Jeremiah is still in prison, but the word of the Lord comes to him a second time, starting in verse 2, thus saith the Lord, the maker thereof, the Lord that formed it, to establish it. the Lord is his name, call unto me and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. When I start to think that things are too hard for the Lord or my situation is too much, all he asks me to do is to call upon him and he's going to answer and he's going to show us things that are so great, like we wouldn't even know it. And as I look back on the twists and turns of my life and how I got from growing up in Florida to, to here in, in, in Utah and and all the rest says, There have been some great and mighty things I had no idea that the Lord had in store. And yet, all I had to do was call upon Him. And He answered me.
1: I love that. And, George, if, if you don't mind sharing just a little bit, um, his story's fascinating because he ended up at UCLA um, working through a doctoral program down there. And he was not a member of the church.
0: Not at all. Um, I had a uh, fellow member in our department, another graduate student who had transferred in from Berkeley, uh, and she happened to be a member of the Church um, and had grown up as such, and it was through her quiet witness and testimony of just living the gospel. Never once did she preach to me, never once did she say, you need to read the Book of Mormon, never once did she try and get the missionaries to talk to me in some sort of way. Um, She just lived the gospel, and that made such an impression on me. I had grown up in a Baptist church, um, and went to Presbyterian Church as, as a college student. So, I wasn't unfamiliar with the Bible, um, nor was I unfamiliar with the Book of Mormon. Um, but her example in her life uh, led me to, to to really question and think about things and do some investigating on my own. Uh, and then through the various twists and turns of fate, we were sealed in the Salt Lake Temple <laughs> uh, and uh, through the Lord's planning. And uh, then we we're, were contacted and, and brought us to Utah. And so, this is our um, part of my testimony is that um, there are great and mighty things that are out there. We just need to rely on the, the Spirit um, and, and have the Lord answer us when we call upon him, and he'll put the right people in our paths because he certainly did for me.
1: George, I love that. It's that idea of whether you come soon or whether you come late or however you are able to come into this covenant connection with God, his promises are the same for George, who wasn't born in the church as they are for me, who was as they are for somebody who maybe joins when they're 89 years old. Mm -hmm. The promises are the same. It's a new covenant that he makes and he's going to bring all these things. Verse 8, I will cleanse them from all their iniquity whereby they have sinned against me, and I will pardon all their iniquities whereby they have sinned and whereby they have transgressed against me, and it shall be to me a name of joy a praise and an honor before all the nations of the earth, which shall hear all the good that I do unto them." It's what you're describing with with Crystal, your wife, is you saw something emanating from her, you felt something different, you saw God's goodness being reflected in her life, in who she was, not just in what she said and what she did, and it's it's a promise
0: that was prophesied here. (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely.
1: So the question some of you may be asking yourself is, but wait a minute, I've been wrestling with things and I've been pleading for God to manifest all of these promises and, and I'm looking for that happy, happily ever after ending to my story and it just – I'm not seeing it. I haven't experienced it. In fact, my problems have gotten worse. The harder I've tried to be, to be good, the worse things have gotten. So h- how is this all going to, to actually come to pass? I think verse 15 – gives us a big clue as to how God fulfills all of these promises that he's made.
0: Absolutely. In verse 15 in Jeremiah chapter 33, it says, In those days at the time I will cause the branch of righteousness to grow up unto David, and he shall execute judgment and righteousness in the land. In those days shall Judah be saved, and Jerusalem shall dwell safely. And this is the name wherewith she shall be called the Lord, our righteousness. And so, Jeremiah, the prophecy that's given here is that even though We have all these things coming, and it may not seem like the Lord's hearing us when we're seeing these great money things. He's going to cause this branch, notice that it's capitalized in your scripture, right? Capital B, this branch to grow up unto David, and so we have this prophecy of Messiah within here that he's going to come, he's going to set things right. It's going to be Christ that's going to come and make things correct, and to eventually— have this situation where Judah and Jerusalem, they're going to be called the Lord, our righteousness, right? So a change in names there, which is very significant, but it's about relying and and waiting on Christ. I'm reminded of this phrase that was um, found in, in, I want to say one of the ghettos in Poland during the Holocaust, or after the Holocaust, they found the phrase, but it was written on the wall and it said, I believe in the sun, even when I can't see it. I believe in wind, even when I can't feel it on my face. And I believe in God, even when he's silent. And So sometimes, and we think about that sort of sense, and in no way would I equate any of my situations with the horrors of the Holocaust and being in right, ghettoized in Poland or anything. But it's that same sort of concept, though, of believing in God even when we think he's silent, he's still there performing things. And as he says later on in this chapter, and, and Tyler mentioned earlier, if you can break the covenant of day and night, then right, he can break his covenant but it's never going to stop, right? Day and night, the earth's going to continue to rotate. We're going to still have sunrise, sunset. We're still going to have these, these phases of the moon. And he says, if those things can be broken, only then will the covenant with David, my servant, be broken. And, right, the Levites will minister unto me. So if we can stop day and night, then we can stop this Davidic kingdom, which is never going to happen. Right? so Christ is going to reign and the priesthood is always going to be effective and right, present for him and we can see that through the restoration.
1: Absolutely. Which brings us to chapter 34, where he's making an additional prophecy that Zedekiah is going to be brought into captivity, which is not the, the message King Zedekiah wanted to hear, of course, but you'll notice you get this concept, again, we've talked about it before, of making a covenant, or in an Old Testament context, cutting a covenant. Look at 34 verse 15, And ye were now turned, and had done right in my sight, in proclaiming liberty every man to his neighbor, and ye had made a covenant before me in the house which is called by my name." This made a covenant, you've cut this covenant. Look at verse 18. I will give the men that have transgressed my covenant which have not performed the words of the covenant which they had made before me, when they cut the calf in twain, and passed between the parts thereof. Harkening back to Genesis 15 this – the serious nature of these covenants that they're not – these are not promises that we're making to God casually that can be uh, broken casually and say, ah, it's okay, I can sin and I'll just repent, it's, it's fine. That's called pre That's – that's a mockery of the Savior's uh, offering of his covenant to us and of his infinite atonement. And so he's he's reinstituting the the serious nature of these covenants that the people are breaking at that
0: time. Jeremiah 36 presents us an interesting view into the production of scripture, the writing of scripture, the reception of scripture, all kinds of things. Now, it it takes place – we have to sort of like backtrack just a bit. We've been talking about King Zedekiah, so somewhere starting rain about 597 or so. And this last sort of part has really been in like a 587 type of bit. This is going to back us up to, as it says in the first part of Jeremiah chapter 36, the fourth year of Jehoiakim, um, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. So it's going to put us somewhere around 605. If you remember from our previous writing on the whiteboard, that's going to be about the year when the Babylonians first come and they're going to take just the elite children and others, and they're going to take them to Babylon to be educated according to the Babylonian manner, and you'll see this in the book of Daniel. So, I would probably put this a little bit before this time because they're really sort of set in in how the Lord is going to defend um, Jerusalem, but Jeremiah is obviously um, given the word of the Lord, and the Lord tells him to take a roll of a book, so take a scroll that's made out of papyrus, and to write all the words, all the prophecies that the Lord has given to him to this time. It's probably also a repeat of Jeremiah chapter 7, in which there's uh, a sermon at the temple. So, Jeremiah in verse 4 calls Baruch the scribe. He says, okay, I want you to write down all this stuff. And Jeremiah says in verse 5, Jeremiah commanded Baruch, saying, I am shut up. I cannot go to the house of the Lord. Therefore, go thou and read the roll which thou hast written for my mouth, the words of the Lord, and the ears of the people in the Lord's house upon the fasting day. So he says, Listen, I'm kind of under house arrest. I can't go to the temple, but I want you to go to the temple and to read all this stuff. And so Baruch writes down all these things. And so Baruch goes. Now, part of the Lord's lesson comes in verse 7. It may be that they will present their supplication before the Lord. And will return everyone from his evil way, for great is the anger and the fury that the Lord hath pronounced against this people. And this is why I would probably put it before that first wave of exile and the first time the Babylonians show up, because Jeremiah is saying, listen, there's this hope of repentance. If they'll repent, if they'll do their supplications to me, then I can spare them. So Baruch goes. He goes, he reads the the words in the temple and some of the scribes hear him and they go to the king and they repeat like, hey, listen, this is what's being read at the temple. And so they get Baruch to come and to bring the scroll to the palace. And then one of the scribes um, takes the scroll and starts to read it to the king, King Jehoiakim. And the response is not what the Lord, I think, wanted from the people or even from the king at all. As we as we look at this, um, verse twenty two, it starts with so the king is sitting is sitting in the winter house, um, so it's early spring. He still has a fire next to him, and as the scribe is reading off the words of Jeremiah and the prophecies that the Lord has given, every three or four columns, the king literally takes a knife and cuts the papyrus, and tosses it into the fire. So it'd be like you're just reading through, and every few chapters, you just kind of tear this out and chuck it onto the campfire, right? and this is this is what's going on here. And of course, there are those who who oppose uh, oppose this. But I think one of the, the interesting things, is if we take a step back, there's two things. Number one, we look at all these and we see these names like El-Naton and, and um, Gemariah and Shephan and Baruch and all the rest of these. What's really interesting is that archaeologically, some of these names have been found in Jerusalem, the, these very people, right? el and, and and Gemariah and um, and some of these others that we have here. And so we have the real stories of real people. So it's not just a nice story that we try and get a meaning out of. These are real events happening to real people. But secondly, despite the king cutting up and burning the scroll, the Lord tells Jeremiah, hey, you get Baruch to write you a second copy and I'm going to give you more. (laughs) And by the way, the second copy is going to be better than the first. So so we have this preservation in which we have scripture being written, scripture being received or not received very well. Destroyed. Destroyed. And then scripture being rewritten, amplified, better stuff. And it just speaks to the fact that the word of the Lord is going to be preserved, and the word of the Lord will go forth and will be accomplished, despite—doesn't matter how many scrolls you cut up and burn, it's still going to be established and, and be carried out.
1: It's almost as if the Lord is saying, I am able to do mine own work. Even, even if all of you try to, to destroy every effort I've made, it's okay. It's, it's going to actually be better than the, than the first version. Now you'll notice when we skip over to chapter 38, uh, you would expect that here's Jeremiah who has consecrated and devoted his entire life the Lord and to do this, this prophetic work that was extremely unpopular in his particular day. In fact, I, I have a hard time coming up with any prophet who has more rejection maybe than Jeremiah in his particular setting from more – more angles in the Old Testament story um, to the point where Look at verse 6, "...they took Jeremiah and cast him into the dungeon of Malchiah the son of Hemalek, that was in the court of the prison, and they let down Jeremiah with cords, and in the dungeon there was no water but mire." So Jeremiah sunk in the mire. That's what he gets for his – for his reward, for – for being this faithful prophet.
0: And not to be indelicate about it, but the the mire there is not just, you know, there's some mud in the bottom. This is used as a cesspit and a trash pit. So he's, he's sinking down into refuse and human waste and all sorts of other things. And this is how they treat the prophet. But what we get is this really interesting and touching story. So here's Jeremiah. He's sunk down into this mire. I'll use the King James word there. And verse seven, now when Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian, one of the eunuchs, which was in the king's house, heard that they had put Jeremiah in the dungeon and the king sitting in the gate of Benjamin, Ebed-Melech went forth out of the king's house and spake unto the king. Now, what's really interesting is we get this story in which Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian recognizes that this is not how you should treat the prophet of the Lord. And he goes to Zedekiah and says, I want to be able to like bring him out and to move him somewhere else. And what it teaches me is it's really interesting. Ebed-Malek, probably is not even his real name, because in Hebrew, that means servant of the king. Mm-hmm. So we have this Ethiopian, the person of color, who is there in Jerusalem serving the king. We don't even know his real name, and yet he recognizes this is not how you treat prophetic authority, and this is not what should happen to Jeremiah. And he stands up, and he actually goes and pleads the case to the king, who then lets him do it. So we have this this situation in which Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, goes and he, he chucks down some rags and says, put them underneath your armpits, And then they lift Jeremiah up out of the miry clay um, and all the refuse and waste that's down there, and they move him to a better spot. And it's just a story of courageousness of some lowly servant that we don't even have his real actual birth name saying, this isn't how we do things. And we can stand up in the face of, of our superiors and say, this is, right, how we should act in a godly manner.
1: And there are so many characters like this Ebed-Melech throughout the scriptures that we don't really know their backstory, we don't know what happens to them in the future, we just – they come onto the scene for a little teeny moment in time, and the Lord works through them in a variety of ways to help his work move forward. I have a long list of these people that I want to meet in the next life. He's on it.
0: Absolutely. He's one of those
1: people I want to just meet and think for having the courage to to approach the king and say, this isn't right, let me let me pull him out, and,
0: and the king let him do it. And the king let him do it. And, and Ebed-Malek's reward, just very briefly, in Jeremiah chapter 39, starting in verse um, 16, go and speak to Ebed-Malek the Ethiopian, saying, thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, so a direct statement from Jehovah, Behold, I will bring my words upon this city for evil and not for good, and they shall be accomplished in that day before thee. But I will deliver thee in that day, saith the Lord, and thou shalt not be given into the hand of the men of whom thou art afraid. For I will surely deliver thee, and thou shalt not fall by the sword. But thy life shall be for thee for a prey unto thee, because thou hast put thy trust in me, saith the Lord. ebed reward is that he is not going to die in the Babylonian siege and destruction of Jerusalem. He's actually going to be spared and right, allowed to live his full life. As he should. So it's just a it's a it's a really great story in the midst of a bunch of a bunch of tragedy. We talked about the fact that there's an 18 month siege of Jerusalem. Um, Jerusalem's cut off. The Babylonians are are have surrounded it. They've already had a couple waves of exiles. They know it's it's going to be bad. The Babylonians have destroyed other cities, and so they're very well aware of what the Babylonians are are capable of. And the situation is is desperate in the last days of Jerusalem. This is the this is the situation that they face before the Babylonians finally break through. Um, take the city. Zedekiah is killed, as we know, Um, and Jeremiah, um, for his part, is going to be left. Actually, Nebuchadnezzar himself spares Jeremiah and allows him to to go free, Uh, and eventually um, a group of Judahites are going to take Jeremiah and Baruch to Egypt to kind of escape how bad things are um, after the Babylonian conquests, they're going to move to Egypt. And and the rest of Jeremiah chapters 39 through 42 are going to be prophecies that Jeremiah makes uh, against the surrounding countries around Judah, even against Egypt about how Babylon's going to come. And then um, there's a little bit of a historical repeat from Second Kings in there. Uh, and so Jeremiah is going to to survive the siege. He is going to eventually be taken to Egypt, and he's going to end his time there, um, still being a prophet of the Lord, carrying out the, the Lord's Word um, even in uh, a new type of Egyptian sojourn.
1: Absolutely. Which brings us now to the book of Lamentations, a lament. It's a it's a interesting type of structure, a a, a literary structure in the Old Testament. What what would the the average member of the Church want to know about a lament and and how it would help them understand the Bible better?
0: Um, I think in general, as we look at lament-type genre, especially in the ancient Near East, what it allows us to do is it allows us to see the perspective of somebody who's going through this. So it isn't a historical narrative where the King Nebuchadnezzar comes and he besieged Jerusalem and he destroyed it and he put out Zedekiah's eyes and all the rest of these things. You get the internal perspective and you see more emotion and more recognition of God's work, and you can also then see prayers within this and and pleas for for mercy as well. So it gives us this firsthand perspective and this internalized view that we wouldn't normally get from a historical narrative, and I think it helps us to to identify as well.
1: So how would you classify – we've got five chapters, five separate poems in in the book of lamentations so if you look at uh, the video on the bibleproject.com for lamentations it's kind of fun they they point out this idea that there's an acrostic form or an acronym kind of a thing where there are 22 verses in chapters 1 and 2 and 4 there are 22 letters in the hebrew alphabet Verse 1 in each of these chapters begins in the Hebrew text with Aleph, verse 2 begins with Beit, verse 3 all the way down to the 22nd letter of the Hebrew alphabet, so it's called an acrostic form. It's not going to get you into heaven if you know that, or it's not going to keep you out of heaven if you don't know that, but it's it's fascinating to see that this is really poetic. Somebody's put a lot of effort into organizing these, these lament poems. The third poem actually has 66 verses, so it's three verses per letter, so it's the expanded one, and then there's no alphabet um, key in the fifth one. It's, it's, It's much more random. So that's a quick overview, but George, there's probably a lot that you could share with regards to these five individual poems.
0: Yeah, with regards to this, we can see, um, if you look in your King James Version, it says the Lamentations of Jeremiah, and if you'll note in verse 1, it really doesn't have anything from there. That's because in the Hebrew text, there's no author kind of given. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, known as the Septuagint, Their first verse says, and it came to pass that Jeremiah sat weeping and composed this lament over Jerusalem, saying, and then it goes into how doth the city sit solitary, et cetera, in chapter 1. And so the Septuagint kind of adds this, and it gives us this picture of Jeremiah. Um, It's a painting we're kind of familiar with. It's hanging on the wall of my office, with Jeremiah kind of dejected in a cave and and down, and Jerusalem's burning in the background, and this is the sort of um, situation with lamentations. As a lament, it's interesting because there's five views that we can take and look within the five poems that are given in Lamentations. Um, The first view is from the perspective of the city of Jerusalem, and it's an outside type view. So looking at the city of Jerusalem as it's being destroyed, and there's various things in here um, about how the city is sitting solitary that was full of people, how she's become as a widow, she that was great among the nations and princes among the provinces, how has she become tributary and just the the absolute anguish that's come at the destruction of Jerusalem. The second poem, chapter 2, kind of gives us this inside view from inside Jerusalem as they experience the wrath of God. So we have this inside view of seeing how the Lord has executed this judgment upon Jerusalem and upon Judah, has cast off his altar, so it means the temple's been destroyed, And there's all these other things that that are going on. And so we have this outside view. Now, one of the beautiful things with this 66 verse um, third poem is that it is an upward view. The upward view that we get as Jeremiah or or whoever has composed this final form gives us is one of the compassion of God. And so we get this this great section, Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Growing up in, uh, in Protestant churches, there's a great hymn that says, great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. And it's based on these verses in Lamentations, but the fact that God's mercies are new every single day. So it goes back to our statement we were talking about. We don't have to wait till Sunday, or wait for 70 years, or wait any time. Every day is a new chance to renew our relationship with the Lord because his compassions don't fail, and his faithfulness is is great, and it's every morning we get to see this. And as he said, because there's day and night, we always have this covenantal love uh, uh, applicable to us. Now, in chapter 4, there's kind of a, a sort of a step back from the entire situation. So, we've had the outward view, the inward view, the upward view, and this one kind of takes a step back and looks at of humanity, and how we've all kind of come short of of God's expectations, and so it's this overall view uh, of sin and and of um, sort of missteps and transgressions and things that that happen. And then finally, the fifth one, which is a prayer of Jeremiah, it's the future view. It's the prayer for what God is going to do um, in the future as he looks forward to a time of reconciliation. And so, right, he recognizes that they've had troubles from the Egyptians, the Assyrians, from the Babylonians, all these things. But as he says in verse 19 of chapter 5, the Lamentations, Thou, O Lord, remain us forever, thy throne from generation to generation. Verse 21, Turn thou us unto thee, O Lord, and we shall be turned, renew our days as of old. Right. So it's the plea there, it's this prayer for a future time, that they'll be returned, that they will repent Uh, they will come back. Um, As I look at Lamentations, I I really see that there's these appeals for help. They obviously expect forgiveness and restoration, and it may not be at that present time, but it's a future time. And what the lesson that teaches me then is that God's compassion, God's love for us is always greater than what the chastisement and judgment is. His compassion far exceeds whatever we're going through, and for them, it's a very dire situation. Starvation, There's sickness, there's the the threat of death, um, actively being killed by the Babylonians, going into captivity, all sorts of things, the uncertainty of the future for Jeremiah and Ebed-Melech and others, Baruch, and yet Jeremiah says God's compassion is still greater than all these things.
1: I love that idea that you can read the Lamentations, and by the way, here's Jeremiah or whoever's putting this together, these it feels like complaints and mourning and expressing frustration and this deep emotion and confusion of about w- what is going on and why is it happening this way and why does it have to be so hard. I love the idea that there's nobody better equipped in all the universe to listen to your complaints, to hear your deep confusions of your soul and your frustrations and your any bitterness of soul that you may be experiencing, there's no one better equipped than God to listen to those laments, and there's nobody better to, to uh, take those struggles to than God and to put them at his feet, as is happening here in Lamentations, with this reminder that his tender mercies and his compassion and his loving kindness far excels, those, those difficulties, whatever they may be, whatever combination of struggles that we're facing in our life. It's a beautiful way to look at the book of Lamentations. I love that, George. So as we finish today's episode from Jeremiah and Lamentations, I think it might be fitting to end where we began, right, with this phrase that showed up in multiple places, dozens and dozens of places in our reading today, thus saith the Lord, we live in a world that is saturated with, with voices, with people who are claiming authority, who are trying to tell you what's going to happen in the future and how you should live your life today. It's our testimony that if we trust the Lord, the God of Israel, and trust that he calls and appoints chosen servants to do his work and to speak for him, he will tell them what we need to know when we need to know it. And sometimes it may not make sense to us and sometimes it's not popular what they're saying, but we can trust that he is going to guide his work. He He's able to do his own work.
0: Absolutely, and as we look at him doing his own work, we recognize that nothing is too hard for the Lord. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. Whatever we have, we can give it to him, and he will extend to us his faithfulness, his redemption to all of us, whether we're in the center or we're on the margins, He calls all of us to the table, and he does so because his compassion is always greater than any judgment and chastisement he can give us.
1: Love that. We leave that with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Know that you're loved.